Hello, and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened, where we discuss, explore, and connect with fellow empaths, healers, intuitives, and seekers. Welcome back to Enlightened Empaths, and today we're really excited to welcome Ben Levine. Ben is the co-founder and chief herbalist of Rasa. He's using his background and his journey as an herbalist to really help revolutionize your morning energy ritual with the power of adaptogens. Ben is driven by a scientific mind that has wanted information to support the tradition of herbalism. He grew up in his family's orchard with the wonder of a profound connection with plants and nature. And he followed that that passion across the globe, working on farms from India to Alaska and learning traditional plant ceremonies from Ethiopia to Ecuador. This all led to Ben earning an MSc in clinical herbalism with a focus on adaptogens. And as he accepted a position as a senior buyer of botanicals for celestial seasonings, Ben was charged with sourcing and purposing over 10 million pounds of herbs each year. But the more he learned about the inner workings of the commercial industry, the more jaded he became as he watched the world's precious botanical resources become ravaged by uncontrolled harvesting and over-exploitation. So once again, Ben followed his heart and, and the call of the plants and left this corporate job behind and became the employee number two to steward the development of ethically sourced adaptogen-infused herbal coffee alternative on the Rasa team. And as the co-founder and chief herbalist has been the formulator of all their blends. This company is built on a foundation of plant stewardship and radical sustainability. They've helped over 100,000 people in connecting, recount with mother nature, live their values and discover boundless plant powered energy. So welcome, Ben. So nice to have you here today. Thanks, Denise. I'm really happy to be here with you. One of the things that I noticed on your site, and this really touched my soul, is that the premise of what you do is really based on sustainable sourcing and purity and testing and social responsibility. And I think a lot of people that are interested in herbalism don't realize the whole industry that's behind this. So could you maybe touch on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. The the herbal international herbal industry is massive. Uh, millions and millions and millions of pounds a year and all over the world uh, in Europe and uh, Southeast Asia and Africa and South America in the U S and these plants are traveling all over the place. And a lot of times they're treated as purely business or commodities. And, and as, as an herbalist, you know, I trained with plants in my own bioregion and with people that really understand the all the other sides of plants besides just their chemicals um, the spiritual side the emotional sides the relational um, the ability to enter into a dialogue with these plants and and so there's always been a bit of a cognitive dissonance but for me on the on the herbalist side versus the commerce side and trying to reconcile those and and say how can we how can we bring love to a global supply chain and bring relationship and deep relationship to the people and plants that really provide a lot of the medicine that we use in the U.S.? Well, what I love is our audience is obviously empaths and very sensitive people and being a plant empath and feeling that energy and vibration 
of each individual plant and species, it's, it's as real as you and I are talking right now. And I think for certain people, there is a, maybe a direct line or a frequency that helps them align more, more purposefully with what that plant wants to offer or what we're able to, but it is, it's a reciprocity. It's a give and take, but there has to be respect for the plant in order for that to be, be there. Could you tell the story of of how this all came about? Because I absolutely adore that story of, you know, you're sitting meditating on top of a mountain in Colorado and then bam. (laughs) Yeah, I was, I was uh, already started on the herb path. I was working for Celestial Seasonings, the massive tea company as a herb buyer and learning the industry side of things. And I was also in herb school in Colorado and really felt like I found my people. Uh, I, I was getting a lot of energy from class and from the incredible teachers I had, but I didn't have a direct experience in the wild with plants in a way that really rooted me in, in the work. And, and so I really, I felt like I wanted this and I was kind of putting that intention out there. And one weekend I just had this intuitive need to get in my car and drive into the mountains. And I drove for about an hour and stopped at this dirt road, started walking up the dirt road. And there's this little trail to the side that I would, you know, it's, it's not on any maps. It's uh, not a marked trail, not a public trail. It's, It's just totally magic that I found it. And I, I started walking up it and I knew that there was this, this sacred plant to the region I live in, in Colorado called Osha. It's, it's sacred for the Arapaho peoples and the Ute and the Shan. And I knew this plant was up there. Uh, I'd never been to this trail before, but I, it was kind of like a almost trance-like. And I, I walked up there and just sat with the plant. I dug a little bit, which was my first time ever harvesting that plant and, and chewed a little, chewed a little bit on the root and just uh, had this profound knowing and, and communication with OSHA. Uh, and it was really, really clear, like clearest it's ever been that the plant path was my path and that I just need to trust the plants and follow the plants and, and relax uh, more than I usually relax. And it was beautiful. And I think that day was the day I fully committed to being an herbalist and knew that I couldn't not be an herbalist. See, I absolutely love that because you're on that path with your your formal training and with these other aspects and working for celestial seasonings. But that feels like a collaboration with spirit was something much more that led you up that, that trail, which is, I mean, that's the stuff you can't make up because of all the trails of all the dirt roads you were directly led to that one. And I think for people who are listening, if following that inner knowing and that calling will lead you to what you need to find if you pay attention. Absolutely. So one of the things that you're very passionate about and that is so, so important right now are adaptogens. So could you describe what that is for people that may not understand and any information you could give our listeners would be fabulous. Yeah. Um, Adaptogens is a fairly recent term. It's a modern term, a scientific term from the 1940s, 1950s. Uh, But if we back up further, almost every traditional medicine system in the world has some word for vitality. In traditional Chinese medicine, it's qi. 
in Ayurveda, it's prana and Greek traditional medicine, it's pneuma, the true energy that flows from the heart. And these traditional medicinal systems also understood that this vitality, this chi can be compromised and it's compromised by uh, like a, a shock or intense emotions, uh, constant overstimulation, whether that's physical, it's mental, and it resembles fairly closely what we call in the modern modern day, uh, what we call burnout. And we're, we're dealing with this chronic stress uh, fairly consistently in, in our modern societies in a way that we never evolutionarily have. Uh, and so this understanding of vitality and chi kind of matches up to a lot of the ways we're compromised today. And these cultures had herbs that they revered particularly to support this vitality. In Chinese medicine, it's the chi tonics. In Ayurveda, it's the rasayanas or the rejuvenative tonics. And most of these herbs are what we now consider adaptogens. Um, adaptogens is a term coined by the Russians. They started doing research in the 40s and 50s, trying to find plants that can help give their people an edge, um, their cosmonauts, their athletes. Uh, and they, they started experimenting with substances like meth, which is obviously a, a really intense stimulant. Mm -hmm. and, and they saw a big increase in performance the first day, but then the second day was a complete collapse well below average in performance. Uh, like it wasn't a sustainable edge. And so they looked for what they called adaptogens, which maybe don't simulate us to the degree that uh, something like coffee or, uh, or meth might, but help us build resilience and help us adapt to stress in a way that gives us greater performance over time. Uh, and, and it turns out that a lot of the plants that are now deemed adaptogens are these traditional vitality tonics. And, and that just blows my mind because they also share a lot of chemistry, whether they're from India or from South America or from China. Uh, there's some, some common chemistry that it helps explain how they work, which is amazing. See, I love that because that, that also goes back to we, we've been given the tools we need if we know how to use them. Mm -hmm. And that may be a connection with spirit or so how do mushrooms fit into the adaptogen category? It's a good question. And mushrooms as a whole are often conflated with adaptogens. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of marketing companies without herbalists, you know, just saying mushroom, all these mushrooms are adaptogens. Uh, but there are three mushrooms in particular that are considered adaptogens that work through the stress response. Uh, and that's reishi, uh, cordyceps, and poria. And, uh, and we use all of those in Rasa and I, I absolutely love mushrooms and mushrooms are great overall tonics, but where adaptogens focus on stress, mushrooms often focus on immunity. Okay. That's really helpful. So if someone was maybe suffering from what would be termed adrenal fatigue, working with adaptogens could be a, a solution or a path towards healing. Absolutely. And and the term adrenal fatigue is a bit of a misnomer. The symptom picture is very much real, but the cause is more, it's up upstream a bit more in the brain where mm -hmm. our cortisol feedback loop is, is started and stopped. Um, and what happens is we develop because we have chronic cortisol, cortisol is our, 
our stress hormone. Right. Uh, it's the it's the thing that keeps you up at night and um and and wakes you up in the morning. On a, if you're if you're on a natural rhythm, it wakes you up in the morning. But often when we have chronic stress, it's all out of whack and chronically elevated. Um, and we develop it's kind of like insulin resistance, but for for cortisol, cortisol resistance. And and that's happening in in the brain where we're unable to shut off the cortisol. Uh, we're less sensitive to cortisol, and then we start getting this this chronic fatigue and burnout and adrenal fatigue. And adaptogens can absolutely be incredible in this scenario uh, because they have compounds that look very similar to cortisol, called triterpenoid saponins, uh, but they don't act quite like cortisol. They're partial agonists, which means they partially bind to receptors that normally would bind to cortisol. Uh, but it has the effect of putting a ceiling on the amount of stress that we feel and the amount of cortisol that's secreted. So if someone were to start using adaptogens as a practice, is it a gradual increase? Does it time release? Is it something that you if you stop it, you're going to stop getting the benefit. I guess, does it build up slowly in your system and become just part of your natural uh, mm -hmm. chemistry? That's another really good question. I, I liken adaptogens to probiotics. So traditionally, we ate probiotics every day in the form of sauerkraut, cheese, and we, we were constantly getting probiotics and they were awesome for our health. And once you stop taking probiotics, after a couple of weeks, your, your body might forget what the, the, the benefits of the probiotics, uh, and adaptogens are similar. It, it takes them like you will feel depending on the herb, you will feel something the first day, but it's really after a couple of weeks that you start to notice the bigger shifts. Uh, I, I remember when I first was experimenting with adaptogens and I would take them before I would take some of the more stimulating ones before I'd go on trail runs and was really enjoying them, but I kept hearing cumulative use is really important. So I took adaptogens for a couple of weeks and I was in the, in a goat co-op at the time. And every Thursday I would go milk the goats, feed them, put them in their pens for the night and, and, and clean up their pens. And it was so much fun. And also so, so frustrating. Anyone who's worked with goats knows like they are, <laughs> <laughs> they're the most stubborn animals I've, I've ever met. And getting them into their pen at night was just, it was, I, I usually got extremely frustrated and angry and just generally dour. And I, and I remember after two weeks of adaptogens, um, this became kind of my reference point was this goat co-op and I was putting in the goats and doing the chores. And, and I noticed like, wow, the clouds are really beautiful. They're like a really beautiful orange today. And just feeling the breeze and just connecting with the coat, the goats, and they were just as stubborn as usual, but I wasn't reacting. I wasn't on as short of a wire. And, and that's when I realized, huh, like adaptogens are, are powerful in a subtle sort of way. That's an excellent way to, to describe it and, and to put it into focus. So I've, taken astragalus for years. It's a, it works well with me. It helps build my immune system. It's just something I've always been really comfortable taking, but I am exploring more of these other things. So what might be some beginning things people could try as adaptogens? 
Yeah, the adaptogens, we talk about adaptogens a lot as a class of herbs, uh, mm-hmm. but they're also unique personalities. And herb to herb, they're quite different. So I think it it depends. If you're going to start with individual herbs, it depends a little bit on your constitution. Okay. Uh, ashwagandha, for instance, is one of the more popular adaptogens from India. Uh, just a really beautiful, nourishing, rebuilding adaptogen. Uh, and it's also a, a nervine, which means it's toning and relaxing to the nervous system. Uh, and it helps you sleep. And I mean, it's, it's just a really, really beautiful herb. One of my favorites, uh, but it's, it's quite heating, which means if you're someone that runs hot, it could be aggravating to you potentially, uh, on the, on the other end of the spectrum, I'd say is Brodiola, which is from kind of the boreal regions of the world grows in Scandinavia, Siberia, far East China. Uh, and, and this herb is one of the more stimulating adaptogens. It's a, a slight central nervous system stimulant. Um, you take it once at a pretty decent dose and you will definitely feel it. And it's very cold in nature. And so if you're cold, it could also a- aggravate your, your constitution. Um, then it can be a bit stimulating for many folks. Uh, so I prefer to give adaptogens either to clients uh, or in general uh, in, in mixtures that are mm-hmm balanced. And that's what we try to do with Rasa is we try to build blends that are constitutionally balanced. So they're not going to be too hot or cold or dry or moist, uh, but they're fairly balanced. And um, some of them are, are gentle and nourishing and tonic. And some of them are a little stronger uh, depending on what you need. And I think that's really, really helpful because a lot of people will just have heard those words and go and get them. And they're not concerned about where, where the herb is coming from, how it was harvested, how it was packaged and shipped and, and all of the things we spoke about a little bit earlier. So by you developing these blends, it allows someone to explore what works best for them and really regulates what their, their personal biology and system. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I was a kid, I worked on my father's lobster boat and he said, This was a long time ago. And he said, people were getting very greedy. And he said to me, Denise, people are raping the ocean and there'll be a time where there's not going to be this abundance. And I think we're seeing that now with with the herbal culture and the mushroom culture. There's uh, chaga became huge in this part of the country where I live. And a lot of people were wild harvesting and, and not respectfully because they were looking at it from a place of greed and money. So could you talk a little bit about sustainability and ethical harvesting of mm. herbs? Yeah, and I'm, I'm really happy you mentioned chaga. Uh, chaga's been booming in popularity and, and not enough people are asking the questions, is it sustainable? It's almost exclusively wildcrafted. And, and there's some massive companies that have made their entire business around this one single ingredient. And, and they're growing fast and you have to wonder, are there going to be issues? And you're already starting to see, uh, wh- where do you live, Denise? Like what uh, are West, Western Maine. Oh, amazing. Okay. You said lobster. So that, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are already herbalists in, in the Northeast and the Northwest of the U S saying like, Hey, 20 years ago, I used to see this many chaga and now I hardly see any, uh, and 
and we're not holding these companies accountable. And also in, in China and Russia, you know, I've seen with, I'll talk about a couple of other herbs in a second that I've seen, like we weren't really aware of what the wild populations were and their sustainability until it was nearly too late or too late in some cases. Um, so I think, yeah, chaga is a, a really good one to talk about. And we, we were using a wild crafted chaga initially in Rasa four years ago. Uh, and I, and I looked into this and I read a great article by Roger Dale Rogers, I believe his name is on the United plant savers website and started thinking about this and realizing like, oh yeah, like this, this could be a problem and I don't want to be a part of this. And we switched to cultivated chaga and have since been trying to push the industry to take a closer look. And, and obviously that's not been easy. And, and we see this with adaptogens as well. Adaptogens have been growing in popularity. They're a bit of a buzzword now in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of these herbs don't grow. Actually, very few of them grow in the U.S. We have American ginseng, which is extremely overharvested. Uh, that grows in the U.S., but most of these herbs are from China and Russia. And part of my passion with adaptogens, like this is a class of herbs I've spent a great deal of time learning about, but I don't have a real physical relationship with them in the way that I do the herbs that grow in Colorado. Um, and if it's, you know, if I'm, if I'm buying and selling them, like I, I need to have that connection. Uh, and so I went to, went to China three, three years ago now and went into the mountains, the Changbai mountains, uh, up in Northeast China, this incredible, incredible spot in China, probably the purest spot in china it's a nature reserve uh, it has a called the largest caldera highest caldera in china caldera is like a volcanic lake and mm-hmm. um it's called the Everwhite mountains because it's it has snow up there most of the year and that's where rhodiola and eleuthero grow uh, which are two of the main adaptogens that we use and i, I had the opportunity to uh, get out of the car at one point as we were driving up these windy mountain roads and and walk into an eleuthero stand and just sit there and try to try to feel and open up like how i do in colorado and just feel the environment and the ecosystem and the the plant and the stand and i I didn't have very much time because my my supplier uh you know we were on the move and it was a a, he didn't quite understand what i was doing Uh, Uh but but it felt important to um, to sit there and and we also harvested one plant which I have on my desk right now it's about two feet from me right now and and something happened while I sat there like there was some transfer of energy something touched me uh, the the Luthero reached out and and when I got back to Colorado you know I continued doing what we're doing at Rasa and I realized that now Luthero and rhodiola are part of my responsibility. Like I like now that I'm more in relationship with them, I am more responsible to understand sustainability and understand their ecosystem. And and it turns out that uh, eleuthero is threatened in the wild as it gets more and more popular. It's getting over harvested. Rhodiola is even farther past that point. It's extremely over harvested in China 
um, to the point where the Chinese government is trying to figure out what to do uh, if they should stop all exports. Um, and, th- and this is a massive industry, by the way. So it's it's going to be uh, pretty pretty bad at some point when if, if things don't change, when rhodiola is more and more scarce. Uh, and so what I've been doing is trying to figure out for rhodiola. I am now supporting a organic Canadian growers association that started growing rhodiola, supporting them and buying rhodiola from them, uh, and trying to help them grow as, as quickly as possible with, with my purchases, which are still small, uh, because a lot of the bigger companies have nowhere to turn. There's no one growing rhodiola at the scale that these bigger companies can use. So it's really a race to see if we can grow cultivation before the wild populations start to really dwindle. And it's also a, a consumer awareness, you know, asking companies you might buy rhodiola from, like, where is this from? Is it sustainable? Do you have full traceability? Then Eleuthero is not quite as far along on the on the overharvesting as rhodiola. Uh, so we're hoping to get a fair wild certification for it, which is is basically a, a system to bring accountability to harvesting. So you do a study over a year and figure out how many plants you can harvest from a hectare and still regenerate the plant. Uh, so maybe you only get 10 pounds out of every hectare, but that means that every year the plant stand is growing. Um, so it's it's not just sustainable, but it's kind of taking care of future generations. Uh, and we're partnering with a couple of other brands in the US and our, our Chinese supplier and pushing that forward, hopefully in a year, 2023 will be Fairwild certified. So anyway, I, I, that was a, it was a long story, but every herb has a similar story and, and developing relationship and asking the questions and, and trying to dig deeper. Uh, it makes me really grateful that I'm in the position I am um, because I'm, I'm able, I just got back from India a few weeks ago uh, where I was visiting organic farmers and I'm, I'm able to start to understand how can we make a better system? And it's, it's going to be a long road, but I'm, I'm happy to be in the industry I am and, and doing the work. But this is also supporting, I don't want to put this, it, it's bringing us together more globally as far as you're supporting these other farms in other countries. And that's part of this transition I think the world is going through right now is it is bringing us together more mm. in a global community. So this may be a, a silly question, but is there any difference medicinally in the wild versus the cultivated? Yeah, you, you have some good questions, Denise. I, I'm appreciating this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that that is a that is a loaded question because the the answer is yes. Um, there's this Chinese concept called Di Dao, or authentic source, uh, where they're only they only want medicinal herbs from where they traditionally grow, and and it turns out that when you take a plant from its watershed or its bioregion and you planet somewhere else, it is not is no longer the same plant. Uh, for instance, chamomile. Uh, I was down in Mexico visiting chamomile fields uh, maybe six years ago and uh, before before Rasa and and realized that chamomile is not native to Mexico. Um, it's native to Europe uh, and there are certain 
bugs in Europe that pressure, it's called pest pressure, uh, pressure the chamomile. And the chamomile produces these protective compounds to drive off the insects. And, it, and those are the compounds that are medicinal for us. There's this beautiful blue oil, camazoline, that chamomile produces. Um, that's a protective compound for chamomile and profoundly medicinal for humans. And in Mexico, there aren't any of those bugs, which is awesome for the farmers because there's no pest pressure. Uh, or at, at least there's different pest pressure, but as a result, the chamomile isn't producing any of that blue oil. So all of a sudden it's not as medicinal. And so anytime you, anytime you start a cultivation project, you also have to do some testing to, and, and think about like, are we giving the plant the same amount of stress that it needs to have to develop its medicinal qualities? Uh, another example is maca in Peru. Awesome. Grown at high altitudes. The Chinese started growing it at low altitudes and using nitrogen fertilizer. And they got like plump radishes instead of maca, like very little maca mites. Um, so the, the rhodiola that we're cultivating uh, or we're buying that's cultivated in Canada, they're lucky in a way that the, the bioregion, like rhodiola grows in boreal regions of the world kind of the top regions of the world and it's grown in Alberta, which has a lot of that, you know, high altitude, extreme winters has a lot of the same environment that the plant would have in Sweden or in Russia. Uh, and so the, the Rosevins are at very good levels. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you. That's really, really interesting because I think Again, it goes back to if you don't have a base of knowledge. And what I love is you can tell this is your world. With the way you talk about it, your energy, you, you found your calling, your path, and what you're very passionate about. And I think so many people are looking for that right now. Mm. And you're lucky enough that you're, you've, you're willing to do the work to be that person. Because I do feel like you're very protective of the herbal world as well as building a sustainable company. Yeah, which is thanks. huge, 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 huge. Going in a, a different direction is uh, a lot of people, and you, you've mentioned this, that you've uh, experienced ayahuasca and, and different psychotropic plants. And one of the things that I feel that's a very sacred ceremony to do any kind of plant medicine, and especially if it's a, to raise consciousness or increase spirit. And it concerns me greatly that people, this is my own personal aside, uh, that some people are seeing it more as a recreational and they're not honoring the intensity of what you may experience when you decide to, to do an ayahuasca ceremony. So could you maybe mm. open that door a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have several thoughts. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is how healing it was to go to, to Ecuador to a, a Quechua community that, that my friend um, has been studying with for over a decade. And as a, as a herbalist in the U S you're, you're hiking on a trail and you see a plant that you love and, you know, maybe you, maybe you pray a little bit with that plant or you're, you're showing some respect and, and folks walking by on the trail might look at you kind of oddly. Like it's, it's a, it's a abnormal behavior in the U S 
to treat plants like anything but uh, a nice green landscape to look at and when i was down in ecuador um they were you know we were on a plant walk and just watching how they interacted with plants and seeing how normalized it was in their culture that like yeah like of course you ask before you harvest of course you do it with respect uh, of course there is more to the plant than it's wood uh, or it's chemicals and um, i remember we harvested a bark from a tree uh, and our our guide juan with a machete added mud to the the wound on the on the tree saying this will help it heal faster and everything about that was just so deeply healing for me like mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not the weird one in the us like the, our society is the is the weird one it does come back to respect yeah and respecting it, not only the uh the, the plant itself but just life in general and i yeah. i see you know the whole thing with um right now the the big uptick in using psilocybin for anxiety and mental health issues and microdosing and and I think people are trying to get back to the healing of the the herbs and the plants and the plant medicine, but aren't always aware of what they may be getting themselves into. Yeah, and I, I think that's unfortunately really easy. It's it's easy to miss, you know, we're we're brought up in a certain I mean, it sounds like you, Denise, were really lucky that you're encouraged from an early age to trust and listen to your intuition um, and to your inner voice. And I I think that's not, that's not common in our society. And we're seeing the world in a very particular way that is driven by our culture and plants, powerful plants like ayahuasca can help crack us open. But we're also often seeing these plants through the lens of our culture. And it's, pretty easy from there to get to the point where we're exploiting that plant or we're abusing that plant or we're, you know, we're using it in a way that is totally separate from how it is, you know, is used traditionally. Right. It's not honoring what that plant is trying to share. Yep. Yep. And I, I mean, just to go back to adaptogens, like tying everything together, uh, I see this with adaptogens as well. Uh, they're like we're a coffee alternative and many folks use coffee to overextend their bodies and kind of perpetuate this disembodiment where the where the mental dominates the body Uh, and and you can use coffee to do that as well and adaptogens are so much milder and so much more nourishing but even then like we still see folks just plug that into the same the same system and say like, how can I use adaptogens to just keep overextending myself? So once you adapt to using your, your products, we're just going to do a shameless plug there because I, your site is beautiful, what you offer and anyone that's looking, you really, really, and we'll talk about that more in a second, but do you have to go through withdrawals of what's in your system now, as you go, as you add in your product? Because I've let go of caffeine different times in my life and got the headaches and the whole physical reaction to that. 
So mm-hmm. is there a, a kind of a weaning off process as your body reacclimates to bringing in the, these healthier adaptogens? Yeah. And I, I could say a lot about coffee. I've, I've had my own uh, cycles with caffeine throughout my life. And I think much prefer my energy without any caffeine, but it is very addictive for me and for many folks. And there's a lot of things going on with caffeine that are going to, I mean, it's very much a drug in in a lot of ways, and there is going to be a withdrawal period. Um, It can be a couple of weeks. If you're a really heavy coffee drinker, it could be longer as your brain rebuilds those receptors that got upregulated or downregulated and and kind of brings your brain back to balance. Uh, And so adaptogens can help folks wean off of coffee. Um, A lot of times we recommend if people are looking to quit coffee to slowly taper. Uh, We, we sell one product that is 50% coffee. Uh, And it was, it was a bit of a fight when we were deciding if we were going to launch this or not. And, you know, I'm like the idealistic purist, like, we can't sell anything with caffeine, but at the same time, like coffee is incredibly popular. And if you're going to quit coffee, it's helpful to have like a half coffee, half adaptogens as an intermediary step as a, as a gateway to adaptogens and Rasa as a whole. And that can really help because they are able to boost your energy a bit um, and help with that the the fatigue that a lot of people get when they quit coffee. Did you see more connection with your intuition? Oh my God. You- <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that's what it is for me. That's what it is for me. I, when I'm drinking a lot of caffeine, it is really hard for me to tell what's my inner voice and what's coffee. I, I am no longer able to trust. Is this my heart energy? Like, I want to do this, or is it just this intense energy I'm getting from coffee that kind of can roll over all of my subtle resistance, um, all of my my little ways of knowing, and and just bulldoze over that and get into this kind of tunnel vision of productivity? Yeah, and I and I lose that inner voice to a good, pretty good degree. Wow, that that's really interesting because I think so many people are trying to improve their connection with their own inner knowing and light and anything we can do for that right now, especially in these tumultuous times is going to be really helpful. And mm-hmm. you, your website is wearerasa.com, W-E-A-R-E-R-A-S-A.com. And you offer a beautiful ritual sample pack and there's a plethora of information and articles and things, but there's also a little quiz on there that will help you find your own blend. So if you're questioning, oh, which one do I need? They'll walk you right through this, which is beautiful. And for our listeners, very, very generous. So thank you, Ben, uh, offering 15% off if you order and use the code enlightened15. So the word enlightened15, the numbers, one five, and that will give you 15% off of your order. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's incredible. You're welcome, Denise. Big, big fan of the work you do. Yeah, well, this is, I think, one of the things that Samantha and I really strive for is to bring people who will have a global perspective. And I know there are people in different parts of the world right now that are hearing this that 
just got a nudge to say, okay, I am on the right path. This, it, the plants are calling me. So what resources would you suggest for people if they wanted to explore herbalism a bit more? Mm, I think I'll do a, a plug for another company that I, I really <laughs> like <laughs> or another, another herbalist that I really love, uh, Guido Maze. He has, so he's the the uh, co-founder of a beautiful company called Urban Moonshine, which is a bitters company. And he has a free herb school on their website. Um, it's a, a 16 week um, introductory curriculum, but it's, I mean, he's a, he's a really inspiring teacher and like, that's such a, a easy, low commitment, low threshold and free way to, to start learning about herbs. Um, and that's, yeah, it's at urban moonshine and then navigate to herb school. He also has a great book called wild plant medicine. Uh, and then uh, away from the more intellectual side of things, I think in a, in a more, uh, relational aspect, finding a, finding a sit spot and just going there as often as you can, uh, and maybe finding an herb that or a plant that you gravitate towards and trying to build a relationship and learn everything you can about it. I sat once for, uh, for about a year, at least three times a week, I sat with this herb called yellow dock, which is a pretty common weed, uh, across much of the U S and, and this one particular yellow dock, uh, that was just felt like a real grandfather of a plant. And I, I learned so much just from showing up consistently and being with the plant. That is really, really helpful. Thank you. And I think as people realize that these are living things that will communicate with us, that will give us energy, that will give us insight, it opens up a whole new world that we might not even be aware of quite yet. It's yep. pretty magical stuff. So thank you so very much for coming on today, Ben. Um, and we appreciate you and your work. And again, anyone that's interested, you can find more about Ben and his company, wearasa.com. It's a, a lot of information and resources, and it may be worth giving yourself the gift of stepping back from coffee a little bit by trying one of their wonderful blends. So to all of you, thank you again for remember to show up, shine your light, do all the wonderful things you came here to do. Take care. Yeah.